Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast, where we take a behind-the-scenes intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field. Welcome to Behind the Knife Trauma Edition. This is our team's first podcast, and we are excited to bring our expertise in trauma to Behind the Knife over the next two years. My name is Marcy Feynman, and I am a trauma and acute care surgeon in Baltimore, Maryland, as well as the General Surgery Residency Program Director at Sinai Hospital. I am joined by Dr. David Sigmund, PGY3 resident at University of Illinois at Chicago and education guru, as well as Dr. Elliot Hout trauma surgeon extraordinaire from Johns Hopkins and past president of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma. Together, we will be your hosts in this episode as we discuss the management of penetrating traumatic cardiac arrest secondary to thoracic injury. Dr. Sigmund, I believe you had a recent case you wanted to discuss with us. Absolutely. Thank you for the kind introduction, Dr. Feynman. Uh, We'll start with a relatively straightforward case for our first episode here. Um, So here we have a 22-year-old gentleman who presents with a single stab wound. Uh, just to the left of the sternum at the level of his fourth intercostal space. Uh, The EMTs report that the patient was stable when he was first uh, taken into the ambulance, but became progressively more tachycardic and short of breath along the way. Uh, EMS gave him a couple of fluid boluses along the way, which he did not respond to at all. Uh, And as the ambulance pulled into the hospital, the patient unfortunately lost pulses. EMS initiated chest compressions as they rushed the patient to the trauma bay. Uh, The patient is now in your hands, Dr. Feynman. How would you uh, start working this patient up and start treating them? Mm. Yeah, thanks, Dr. Sigmund. You know, unfortunately, we see these kinds of injuries um, too frequently. And once the patient gets to the trauma bay, uh, we really, the first thing to decide is stable versus unstable. Clearly, this patient is in extremis and already in arrest with no vital signs. Uh, So ACLS should be ongoing and continued. And then we have to make some decisions. Um, We have to decide when and if to intubate. We have to decide when and if to open the chest. And in trauma, that's always our big decision. And people decide these things uh, a couple different ways these days. Um, And I know a few of these things are institution specific. So Where I am, the first thing we do when a patient like this rolls into our trauma bay is grab the ultrasound and perform a cardiac fast. Because for us, that gives us um, a ton of information to decide what to do. If there is zero cardiac motion at all, and the patient has no vitals, even though they just lost them right before rolling into the trauma bay, uh, there's pretty decent data that says that any chance there's zero chance of meaningful recovery in that situation. So if we have patients that have no cardiac motion at all, uh, we will not proceed any further and we will call the code at that time. Um, hey, can I ask a question? Yeah, sure. But what if they have clear tamponade on ultrasound? So isn't that an indication maybe for thoracotomy? Uh, that is a great question. Um, and I would say yes. So I'm glad you clarified that. I would say that's with no cardiac pathology. So let me be a little bit more clear in my initial answer. Cardiac fast, no motion, no cardiac pathology. Then 
you know, we don't go any further, but um, tamponade, especially if it's from a stab wound, like in this patient um, has up to 50% chance of survival if treated quickly. So yeah, I think that is a great uh, point of clarification. There's a great paper from Kenji and Abba's group that talks exactly about that. And I would agree with you a hundred percent on that decision. Yeah, it's worth the read. And again, this is kind of what we follow, but I know that there are some institutions that still, um, that follow the East guidelines. And Dr. Hout, I know that you've been instrumental in writing a whole bunch of East guidelines during your tenure, uh, during your tenure there. Um, so what do you do? And do you, you know, follow a time-based algorithm, an ultrasound-based algorithm? So I I will say that, you know, the EAST guideline, I think, is very helpful. There are definitely different algorithms from different groups. There's an algorithm, uh, evidence-based medicine guideline from EAST. There's a trauma algorithm for this from the Western Trauma Association. Um, Some uh, of the older data really is time-based, whether it's a 10-minute cutoff or a 15-minute cutoff or differential for blunt versus penetrating. Um, I think that has certainly historically been the way people have done it for deciding who gets or does not get an ED thoracotomy. Um, I think the newer data with ultrasound uh, is my personal practice these days. And my practice matches exactly what you said. Early, fast cardiac view is critically important for helping to make a decision. Um, But that being said, I think there's definitely data from years ago about the time-based piece. And if you don't have ultrasound available at your center, or you don't feel very comfortable with it, uh, then it is certainly reasonable to use some time-based ideas of, you know, within the past uh, 10 minutes or 15 minutes as a cutoff for who who does or doesn't get a thoracotomy. I think you made a really good point too about comfort level with ultrasound, because it takes a lot of practice to be really facile at the fast exam and getting all your windows and stuff. And so I think when in doubt, it's nice to have an algorithm to fall back on that is time-based for sure. And then the other thing is sometimes you can't get a good view on the ultrasound if there's subcutaneous air uh, or due to obesity or things like that. So I think, you know, the backup of time-based is not, uh, not entirely gone from the practice of trauma surgery. No, I think it's great. I think that we should, um, you know, I, I feel like we got a little bit off on a tangent because you asked initially, Dr. Sigmund, kind of like this patient arrives and what do we do? And I think it's just important to recap, putting my education hat on for a sec, ATLS, you know, the 10th edition came out not too long ago. Um, it still follows ABCDE. Um, and so in this patient specifically, Whoever's at the head of the bed will likely be securing the airway with an endotracheal tube, which is the best option for this patient. We want to make sure that there are breath sounds bilaterally because with the mechanism of injury that you mentioned, um, already we're thinking about a couple of different pathologies, could be heart-related, could be lung-related. If a patient has a tension pneumothorax, that's something that needs to be addressed immediately. We need some kind of access. Um, you know, if IV is not possible these days, IO is the next go-to, whether it's tibial or uh, humeral, either one can work. Um, and then blood, this patient definitely needs blood. Um, 
And I know we're not planning on going into like a lot of detail about blood, but remember the PROMIT and the proper trials all say massive transfusion. We want to closely approximate whole blood to the best we can. Uh, one to one to one is what we still do these days. Um, yeah. And then we make our decision from there. And I think all this, remember, all this is happening at the same time, especially if you're in the trauma bay. You know, there's a bunch of teams working on the patient all together. And so then we're going to get ready for our ED thoracotomy if that's the way we decide to go. And I'll just add on that, you know, ATLS as a reminder is for, you know, one clinician taking care of the patient. This patient with one clinician has a really small chance of survival. It only is going to work. The the way to save this patient is teamwork. Um, And you're going to need an airway team and a procedure team and a team running the code and you need nursing and you need someone to get the blood and all these other pieces. The choreography of the trauma team is what's going to save this patient. Yeah, quick plug for um, simulation, right? The best place to learn this stuff. Dr. Hout, you and I have talked about this in the past for sure. The best place to learn this stuff is like in a lab doing simulation with all the stakeholders there. Um, That's where you get that choreography down, the communication. And so when it's the real thing, it's just like you've practiced a million times before. Yeah, I couldn't uh, emphasize that more. Certainly, simulation has a huge role in increasing uh, responder you know, familiarity, both with their tasks and with the team they'll be working for. Uh, so assuming, Dr. Feynman, that everything goes well with those initial steps that we take, um, we get our EFAST going, um, and we see a uh, pericardial sac that has a fair amount of fluid in it. Uh, Dr. Howard, how, how would you proceed in this situation? So that patient in my hands is going to get an uh, ED or resuscitative thoracotomy. Um, And I think, you know, that is not a procedure that stands alone. That procedure comes along with a bunch of other maneuvers. So, and it's not just a one person job. You know, I'm always doing that with the most senior resident. Um, That's who's doing the resuscitative thoracotomy. But simultaneously, we've already heard, you know, there's an airway team working on the airway, getting the patient intubated. Um, That person should also put an NG or an OG tube down. uh, And we're going to talk about why that is later. Um, We always need to remember that right chest tube, see what's what's going on in the right chest. But that stuff happens simultaneously. And then we talked about access, massive transfusion protocol, blood. If you have whole blood, great. If you have red cells and components, that's great too, but try to get blood as quickly as as you can. Um, So that's where we're going. That's the maneuvers that we're going to start to talk about is that resuscitative thoracotomy. You know, I think it's worth mentioning too, um, even though it's basic, keeping the room warm and the patient as warm as possible is Super important, right? That whole lethal triad about hypothermia and coagulopathy and as much as we can do uh, to avoid that, the better off we're going to be in the long run. Absolutely. Uh, so you get, you get as much blood available as possible. Uh, activate your institution's massive transfusion protocol. Um, warm up the trauma bay to try and avoid that uh, lethal triad of, of hypercoagulability. Um, so, so Dr. Feynman, when you make the decision to do an ED thoracotomy, what are the things that would indicate that you need to get that done right away? 
If you're doing an ED Thor economy, I don't think there's any ED Thor economy that doesn't need to be done right away. Time is of the essence in these patients, no matter uh, no matter what. And I think Dr. Hout's um, point of everybody working in concert, but doing the job that they are best suited for is what gives you the best outcomes. So the trauma surgeon and senior resident are the ones who should be doing the thoracotomy. The chest tube can be placed by a surgery resident or the ER. The airway is being managed either by anesthesia or the ER. Um, And all those things together will make this be as efficient as possible. It's really important too to have people in the trauma bay who are familiar with the equipment because you don't want that to be a rate limiting step either. You know, we didn't, and not to go backwards, we didn't talk a ton about like if you have a little bit of advanced warning before this patient lands in the trauma bay, what you would want. But just to go backwards for a sec, if you know that you have a patient who has penetrating trauma essentially to the cardiac box, you want to make sure you already have two chest tubes readily available. You have your thoracotomy kit available. You have suction set up, your airway tray, um, your IO or a cordis or IVs, like all of that should be out so that when you are ready to go and you are ready to start, uh, the equipment doesn't slow you down. And I'll add that you want your ultrasound plugged in. As silly as it sounds, <laughs> there is nothing worse than waiting for the ultrasound machine to warm up while you're doing uh, ineffective CPR, trying to decide if you're doing a thoracotomy or not. That is an excellent point. And, you know, spoken by somebody who's been there. I just have to take a deep breath and just go with it. So... Um, you know, we talked or Dr. Stigman, you had asked me, or when we see the fast, it looks like the pericardium is full. Patient has a penetrating mechanism. They've lost vitals quickly. So, um, I think we're all in agreement that resuscitative thoracotomy is the way to go. Dr. Hout, you've probably done more of these than any of us, kind of what's your go-to setup of the patient and how do you make this happen? Sure. So time is of the essence. Um, so like I said, it's all happening simultaneously. Uh, you got to get someone to lift the left arm above the head, um, get it out of your way. Uh, you're going to want to make a, an incision in the left chest, basically from the sternum to the bed over the uh, fourth intercostal space. Don't forget that curves. It's not a straight line. Uh, you're going to get into the chest and then we're going to be looking for easily, and I put that in air quotes, easily fixable pathology. If it's a tension pneumothorax, that's easily fixable. Um, but there's also other things we're looking for. We're going to look for cardiac injury. We're going to look for lung injury. We're going to look for major, um, you know, vascular injury. But I think the cardiac and lung injury are the things that we're going to be looking for the most. So we're going to get access to the chest. That right chest is going to get access with the chest tube as well. So now we've done our thoracotomy. You get your retractor in place. And now 
uh, you're going to want to be looking at both the lung and the heart. Uh, and I think there's a few key moves to try to figure out what you do first, um, the, the lung part or the heart part first. Uh, my personal go-to is if the if you can look in the heart and, and you see the pericardium tense and bulging with blood, I go to the heart first um, and evacuate that tamponade because that's going to be an important critical move. Um, you want to incise the pericardium longitudinally. You want to um, uh, evacuate any blood that you see. You want to start to look at the heart, see what's going on, see where the injury is, and then figure out if there's some uh, temporary or definitive repair of the heart that's necessary. Uh, there's lots of uh, things that get taught uh, for the residents out there. If you ever get a chance to take the ADAM course that the College of Surgeons puts on, it's great. Um, you learn some of these tips and tricks and you get to practice them. So you can do something as simple as a skin stapler to uh, staple a hole in the heart closed. You can suture it closed. Uh, it's taught that you can put a Foley catheter balloon in and occlude a hole that way. You put the Foley catheter in, you inflate the balloon uh, with saline, you gently pull it back against the hole and that, that uh, closes that hole down so that the heart stops bleeding. That's uh, certainly some maneuvers that you can do like that. Um, and then you can also be doing cardiac massage. So if there's no injury to the heart you're, and the heart is now starting to fill with blood, you're gonna wanna do cardiac massage very, very smooth hands, uh, not any fingers pushing on the heart. You don't want to make an extra hole in the heart. Uh, you can either push up against the sternum or you can get one hand above and one hand below to uh, do CPR on the heart as well. So that's some, some things that we're looking for when we do that cardiac uh, maneuver, uh, looking for injuries in the heart and then how we're going to fix them. So Dr. Howe, you know, you mentioned being able to use a skin stapler, which I remember the first time I heard and learned about that, I thought was crazy, but it is just a temporizing maneuver. Um, or you can sew it. Do you have a preference for type of suture that you use? Uh, yeah. So I like a, a proline. I like a bigger needle. Um, I know some people will put their finger over the hole to occlude it. And then they take the needle and they, they're taught to put it underneath their finger. I never try to teach that. I think that's a pretty dangerous maneuver because you're never sure where that needle is going to come out and it might come right out into your finger. So uh, I personally like to, the, the stapler works for me. I've used it and it's, it's salvaged patients. Uh, it's easier for some of the smaller stab wounds uh, as a great temporizing maneuver while you kind of refill the heart, get the blood in the patient, then you can go ahead and more definitively repair them with, uh, like I said, a proline suture. Yeah. And these temporizing maneuvers are really just to get them to the OR. Um, so that definitive repair can be done with pledgets and, you know, make it look pretty and effective for the long run. It's important to make sure um, that you have some idea of where the coronaries are. Because if we can avoid those, that's always a good idea. Um, and in terms of the stapler, I find that the wide stapler is the way to go. It depends on what's in your ER or trauma bay. Some have like the little narrow skin staplers. Those don't really work as well. You need those I, wide skin staplers. I would agree hundred percent. And then the other thing to remember um, for stab wounds, sometimes you will see a person with just a simple, straightforward anterior uh, cardiac stab wound. But for patients with gunshot wounds, if they have one hole, you got to find the other hole. 
So it might come in the front, but you got to look in the back. You got to find that other hole because fixing one isn't going to fix the patient. Um, so that's just an important thing to remember uh, when you're de dealing with cardiac gunshot wounds, which are much, much more lethal than the stab wounds. Uh, the stab wounds, you know, many trauma surgeons have people walking around uh, surviving from cardiac stab wounds. The patients with severe gunshot wounds to the heart are uh, a little less likely to be salvaged. I've always been curious as a resident, you know, I've read quite a bit about um, trying to avoid the phrenic nerve when you're incising the pericardium. It, the nice thing about it is you can actually see the phrenic nerve running along the outside of the pericardium and it runs cranial caudal. And the idea is to go parallel to it. So your, uh, your incision, um, and often it's hard to actually make that first incision in the pericardium, especially in someone with tamponade and it's really, really tense. It's hard to grab it and cut it with, with a scissor. You really do have to incise it with a knife. Um, and then you can take your scissors and you wanna make a straight longitudinal incision parallel to the phrenic nerve not towards it or cut through it. Uh, obviously the phrenic nerve is not fixable. Um, so you really don't wanna cut it um, uh, and cause a worse problem in, in a patient you might have otherwise salvaged. Also, when you are making that incision, you wanna make it as big as possible. I mean, you are going top to bottom because uh, you wanna be able to deliver the heart out, essentially out of the pericardium, right? You have to look at, both sides, you know, anterior, posterior, especially if it's a gunshot wound, you're looking for that second hole. Um, plus, as long as you make it super large, you don't have to worry down the line about herniation because there's no small hole to herniate through and get stuck. Um, the other thing I mentioned was lung injury. G give, me, uh, give me your go-to moves or, or tell me how you kind of work that up and, and find those injuries and what do you do about them? Mm, good question. I find cardiac injuries easier than lung injuries sometimes. Um, That's why I gave you the hard one. <laughs> thanks so much. I think that, you know, you had mentioned uh, in the beginning things like putting uh, an OG tube in the patient. And again, we'll talk about that. So the first thing that I think is really important to evaluating essentially the left chest and the lung and stuff is to make sure that whoever intubates the patient puts that endotracheal tube in as far as possible. If you can get the patient right main stemmed, uh, it will allow the left side to deflate and make it much easier to be able to visualize all of your anatomy. So your lung and get to your heart and the pericardium and all of it. So right main stem is key. Um, and then essentially you're looking for the bleeding. So if it's a parenchymal injury, especially if it's something distal parenchymal, great. Again, this is in the ER. So we're temporizing big clamps are your friends. You can just put clamps on that and get up to the OR. Okay, once you're in the OR, you can do something a little more formal. You can staple it. Uh, you can wedge out injury, and that's fine. If it's something like much more proximal um, or with a decent amount of bleeding, you may end up needing to do a hyalur twist. So you may have to take your entire lung, all of the lobes, and essentially 
turn it a minimum of 180 degrees. And what you're trying to do is pinch off the blood supply at the hilum, again, temporizing just to stop the bleeding to get up to the operating room. You do have to remember to make sure that you mobilize the inferior pulmonary ligament in order to do that. Those are my those are my big go-tos. Do you have anything else that you do? No, I think that that's kind of uh, the same thing I do. I'm not a giant clamper of the lung, um, but I do like that hyalur twist. In someone who's bleeding, it's super fast. You take take down the inferior pulmonary ligament, you twist the lung, and it's amazing how quickly the bleeding stops. Other people do talk about a big, large uh, vascular clamp across the whole hilum. I find it just gets in your way and it's really difficult to do anything once it's there. I find the hyalur twist um, uh, a nice maneuver instead. I think the other thing that's important and, and neither one of us talked about yet is, you know, especially if there's potential for intra-abdominal bleeding, uh, cross clamp of the aorta. So cross clamp of the descending thoracic aorta is going to do a few different things for us. Number one, it's going to stop bleeding if it's coming from, you know, concomitant injury to the liver, spleen, et cetera, uh, below the diaphragm. It's also going to shunt blood, you know, preferentially to the head and to the heart, which really, really, really need it. And we'll get blood to the other things uh, below the diaphragm later. Um, And I think there's a few important tricks that that NG or OG tube that you already mentioned is critical because you're going to run your hand from uh, along the inside of the chest wall towards the mediastinum, and you're going to feel the aorta and then the esophagus. Sometimes if the aorta is flat because there's no blood in it, it's sometimes hard to tell the aorta from the esophagus. So that's why that OG tube is so important. You can tell the thing with the OG tube is the esophagus. Don't clamp that because that's not going to do anything helpful. You want to get your clamp onto the aorta. And it's important, you have to open up the the pleura overlying the aorta so you can get your clamp on the aorta directly and it doesn't just slide right off. Uh, So I think those are some key moves for cross-clamping the aorta, which is critically important as well. You know, I think too, if you are going to cross-clamp the aorta, uh, we talked a little bit about vascular access earlier, but you really need to make sure that you have access both like kind of above and below the diaphragm. That's general teaching so that, you know, you ideally want to use your above the diaphragm access to the extent you can um, during your resuscitative thoracotomy. If you're having uh, IV access issues and you can't get enough, uh, we talk about central access and we think that means a, you know, a central line, but don't forget if you have the whole heart exposed, you've done a clamshell you can put a line right into the atrium and that is as central as you get. Excellent points on uh, workup and interventions, Dr. Hout and Dr. Feynman. Um, I do remember before the episode, we were discussing a bit um, some of the more interesting cases you've had. And you had one Dr. Feynman uh, involving persistent bleeding from the intercostals that I thought would be interesting for our listeners to hear. Oh, yeah. This is probably the hardest case that I ever had. And it was during fellowship and, uh, Dr. Howard actually came in to help me out and save this guy's life. Uh, Also, penetrating trauma patient, multiple stab wounds, bleeding profusely from the chest. Um, Hypotensive, went straight up to the operating room. We didn't do an ED thoracotomy, but we did one as soon as we got up to the um, 
got up to the OR and he was bleeding from a transected intercostal posteriorly, like right next to the spine. Um, and I remember thinking that, you know, we, I could see it, I could see it and I had good exposure and suction. And no matter what I do, I just, I like, could not get around this thing. And at one point I could not believe that this patient was going to bleed to death from this injury that I could see right in front of me. Um, and thankfully he didn't because Dr. Hout came in and saved the day. Those cases are super hard. I did one relatively recently with a resident uh, and he told me that was the hardest case he's ever done. These intercostals, number one, they bleed a lot. They're big arteries. Um, and you, you, you have a tough time getting them, especially when they're really, really medial. So there's a few good tricks that I think are important to remember if you end up doing this. So the first is exposure. You got to take down the pleura over top of this to, to try to see as well as you can, because otherwise it's just kind of underneath everything. Um, you really want to crank on your retractor to spread that rib space as much as you possibly can to see if you can get a stitch in into that space. Um, if you can't get your stitch just right around the vessel itself, um, sometimes you can temporize it with, you know, uh, pinching it with a pickup and uh, putting a clip on it. That'll work as a temporary maneuver, and it's it's great when it can work. But if you can't do that, the stitch isn't working between the ribs, you can go entirely around the rib with just a big, huge needle um, to, to get uh, proximal on this and then cinch your suture and tie it down around the rib to stop the bleeding that way. Sometimes, and in this case, what we had to do was we used a Keith needle, a straight needle around the rib all the way to the outside and around the skin and tied it down there. Um, so oh. those things, they can bleed a ton and they are really, really, really hard to access. Get an extra pair of hands, two suctions, and just keep going. You're going to get it controlled. All right. I, I think that's definitely an excellent learning point to add on to everything else we've done today. Um, thank you everyone for listening so far. We appreciate with you going through uh, uh, with us in our first episode. This being um, behind the knife, we know that we wouldn't be doing it right if we didn't do some quick hits here at the end. Um, so here we go into quick hits, question and answer, bang, bang, bang. Uh, Dr. Feynman, what are the definition of the anatomic boundaries of the cardiac box? Cardiac box is clavicles to rib cage superiorly and inferiorly, uh, and the nipple line. But I think it's really important not to forget that patients are three-dimensional. So it's the same area, front and back. Uh, Dr. Sigmund, can you review the indications for a suscitative thoracotomy? Absolutely. Um, so as we discussed, you know, there, there are some shifts recently. Um, we can use the FAST to look for cardiac motility um, with recent papers demonstrating that there's basically zero chance of your uh, resuscitative thoracotomy being successful if you have absolutely no motion, um, the only caveat being potentially considering doing a thoracotomy in the setting of tamponade, or um, especially if you have difficulty getting an ultrasound or the patient has a, a poor body habitus for it, you can also use the time-based, uh, which is to say perform resuscitative thoracotomy on patients suffering from blunt trauma uh, if they lose pulses in the bay or um, do it if they lose it pulses in the ambulance uh, for penetrating trauma. Uh, Dr. Houch, when do you do an isolated right thoracotomy? Uh, never in the trauma bay as a resuscitative thoracotomy. Resuscitative thoracotomy always starts with the left side 
You might clamshell over to the right, but never start on the right alone. And honestly, even if you get up into the operating room and you think you're doing only a right thoracotomy, prep the abdomen. Just trust me. It's always the liver. Uh, um, So then speaking of the right side, then it sounds like you're telling me that that when I'm thinking about doing an ED thoracotomy, I can just completely forget about the right side and there's nothing to worry about over there. Not at all. And we've already talked about it. Don't forget the right chest tube. Every single time you need to access the right chest, even if it's just the thoracostomy to open it and find out if there's blood. If there's blood in the right chest, clamshell across, you come across with uh, a finishette, I'm sorry, with a Lebschke knife or trauma shears. So uh, Dr. Feynman, how long do you let the beta nine dry after you prep for a thoracotomy? No, I'm just kidding. Uh, that's not a thing. The, we do the thoracotomy very quickly. There's usually not time for that. Some people give it a splash, but don't wait for it to dry. My real question for you is, can you give us some really good tips or for the person at the head of the bed who's helping you? Uh, yeah, my two most important things, make sure the endotracheal tube is right main stem. So in as far as possible, um, and ask whoever's up there to place an OG tube in so you can differentiate the esophagus from a flat empty aorta. As long as all you're explaining all the steps, Dr. Feynman, I'm curious um, if you could boil it down so that even a, a simple 30 year resident like me can kind of uh, understand it easily. What are the steps to get uh, this thoracotomy access? Um, okay, so once those couple things I just mentioned are in, patient's left arm goes above their head. You may need someone to hold it up there. You're going to make your incision, fourth intercostal space, starting at the sternum, going to the bed. Make sure you curve upwards. It's not a straight line. You need to follow the space and avoid the breast in females. Uh, I use the knife the entire time. Remember, these patients aren't circulating, so they're also not bleeding a ton in their sub-Q. So knife all the way down to the ribs. I use curve mayos to get in, uh, into the pleural space, and then we're in. Uh, Dr. Sigmund, you know, I feel like this comes up sometimes. What's the best way to place the finichetto? Uh, and for people who have trouble with Italian, like me, the finichetto is the instrument we use to spread the ribs. It's these two big plates kind of with a crank on us. Um, you really want to be careful when you're placing the finichetto to make sure, um, that the bar and the handle part are lateral. That is near the bed. Um, cause heaven forbid you have to extend, uh, your thoracotomy across to the other side of the chest. There's a big steel bar. Uh, between your scalpel and the skin, you're not going anywhere. Um, and there's nothing more terrible than when a patient is crashing to have to release your retractor and flip it around because you put it in the wrong way. Uh, so you always want the bar of the finichetto uh, pointing down. So Dr. Howd, you were just kind of discussing it before, um, but it sounds like you have quite a few tricks in your bags. Uh, what are some of the tricks that you have once we reach this point where we're actually in the patient's chest? So uh, we talked a little bit about uh, that the long maneuvers are take down the inferior pulmonary ligament all the way up to the inferior pulmonary vein. Don't injure that. Hyler twist to stop bleeding in the lung is the maneuver of choice for me uh, when you're in the chest. We talked about uh, placing the cross clamp, open the pleura, you gotta get directly on the aorta. We already know the OG tube is there, so you're not clamping the esophagus. And then uh, the, so that's kind of long in the chest wall piece. So, uh, Dr. Feynman, give us uh, your tips on exposing the heart. Um, the heart. Remember to avoid the phrenic nerves. They do run top to bottom. So we're incising the pericardium longitudinally, cranial caudal, 
as much on top of the heart as possible. Um, as big an incision as you can, we leave it open at the end. We don't need to worry about herniation. Um, and I think that is like our big take homes. Those are our top 10 tips and tricks. Um, I think this was a really great discussion and review of traumatic cardiac arrest secondary to penetrating thoracic injury. Uh, thanks to Drs. Hout and Sigmund for joining me, Marcy Feynman, on our first podcast for Behind the Knife. Until next time, dominate the day.